Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Hypnosis Nerd Podcast. This is the first episode of what we're hoping will become a series of video casts and podcasts where we take something that is poorly understood by the public, hypnosis and hypnotherapy, and we explain it in a way that makes sense to you. Hi, my name is Kim, and I'm the client care coordinator here, the weekday client care coordinator. For this first episode, um, Kim has prepared some questions for me. Mm -hmm. She started here only a couple of weeks ago, so today was her first time being hypnotized, and she had Mm -hmm. also seen our clients come in and out for the past few weeks. Right now in January, it's the busy season for hypnotherapy. It seems like everyone around this time of year wants to stop smoking, they want to lose weight, they want to improve their relationships and their finances and their career and so on. So there has been a lot of activity here. I understand you have a number of questions you prepared for me. Yes, I do. I'll just have you go through the questions, and I'm sure that everything you're curious about is Mm -hmm. also something that our listeners are curious about. Briefly describe what hypnosis is. Okay, fantastic. Um, If I were to boil down the essence of hypnosis that all practitioners can agree on, it's a state of mind where the client is more open to new ideas, new attitudes, new perspectives, and new ways of thinking. Right. And that's something I think that all practitioners can agree upon, which is that someone who's in hypnosis has opened their mind Mm -hmm. to new ideas. Now, there are debates over, for example, um, whether it is the practitioner's words affecting the client's mind that causes change, or whether it is the thoughts and the feelings or the images and metaphors that arise in the client's mind when they're in that state that then causes change. Mm. So I don't want to speak on behalf of anyone else. I'm going to define hypnosis in my practice as mm-hmm. um, a state of mind where the client's open to new ideas, and that state is facilitated by the practitioner. Um, to boil down hypnosis in just a few sentences, mm-hmm. it is the client opening their mind to the words I speak, and then my use of words to affect how the client thinks or feels about the issue or issues that they're presenting with. Um, So my next question would be, how would somebody know that hypnosis is a right solution for them? That's a great question, because it sort of implies that hypnosis isn't the right solution for everybody. Right. And I'm going to kind of break rank with a lot of practitioners, and I'm going to just outright say that there are some people for whom hypnosis would be the long way around. So, Mm. for example, someone who has a very hard time letting go of their analytical critical mind Mm -hmm. is someone who would first have to learn how to do that, before they can effectively or deeply be hypnotized. Of course. So I would say that through no fault of their own, there are some people who are just not great candidates for hypnosis and are much more obvious candidates for something like um, cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. So um, how would someone know if hypnosis is right for them? Right. Well, there are two parts to my answer. The first is can they be effectively hypnotized? And because of the expectations or norms, Mm -hmm. um, can they be hypnotized in a first session? That's the first question I want to to answer. Mm -hmm. And secondly, um, once they're hypnotized, that's not the end of -hmm. it. Once they're hypnotized, can the practitioner come up with a set of messages Mm -hmm. or a set of attitudes to communicate to the client while their mind is open such that we can reasonably predict 
that they can benefit from the session. Right. So it's those two things. It's not just being hypnotized. Mm-hmm. It's also can an attitude change mm-hmm. or a change in perspective benefit the client? So to answer the first question of um, can the client be hypnotized, there is something known as a suggestibility test. Yes. We have a few on our YouTube channel. We do this exercise in our office. Mm -hmm. But because hypnosis is my use of words to affect the client, I give the client a standard set of suggestions and see to what degree they are affected physically by the words I speak. Mm -hmm. And people who are very much affected by the words I speak are better hypnotic subjects than people (laughs) who are not affected as much. And this this is a predictive um, method for answering the question Mm -hmm. of can someone effectively and quickly be hypnotized? To, to um, answer the second part of the question, mm-hmm. which is that once they're hypnotized, can we predict that verbal suggestion delivered by the hypnotist and accepted by the client will help the client? Right. So um, that is where I put more of my thinking. So I would characterize much of what I do as bringing people's attention to truths they had overlooked, mm-hmm. um, truths they had neglected. If something can be helped with an attitude change right. or by making a strong decision or a change in perspective significantly impacts the client's quality of life, then probably hypnosis can help. Okay. If just an attitude change isn't enough to help the client, mm-hmm. then probably hypnosis can't now, help. Is there anything that a client could do to increase their chances of entering a hypnotic state? That's a great question as well. So obviously, you've done a number of intakes mm-hmm. over the past few weeks with yes. different clients. You've also seen people go through the assessment, and you can see there is a wide range of responses to exactly the same exercise. Right. So <laughs> the question is, you know, can you take someone who's lower in suggestibility and start moving them up the scale? That's right, yeah. And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. So there are a few things someone can do. The main one is that the first time anyone does anything new, they're going to be more uncertain. They're going to be thinking a lot more. They're going to be less comfortable compared to the fifth or the tenth time they're doing it. Of course, yeah, like any other practice, really. <laughs> like any other practice. And mm-hmm. relaxation is a skill. Mm-hmm. Focusing on letting someone else's voice guide your thoughts and feelings, mm-hmm. if you see it as a skill, that's something you can practice. That's something you can develop. Mm-hmm. Suspending your normal analytical thinking is also a skill. If you see going into hypnosis as a skill, then yes, it's something that you can learn. Mm -hmm. So we have a number of sample sessions on our YouTube channel just because people can go through their first few sessions at home. That way we can hit the ground running when people come in for live sessions. Right, so they become more prepared or they learn how to be more prepared entering a session with you. And they know what to expect. Yes. There are no surprises. Mm -hmm. How do you practice differently from other practitioners, hypnosis practitioners? Yes. Um, Now... I can't speak to the differences between me and literally every practitioner. So I'm sure in the world Mm, out there, mm -hmm. there are practitioners who are pretty much a perfect match with me and my philosophies and my worldview and and so on. Um, But um, my answer, I would say, has changed over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, Early in my practice, I did more of what is commonly taught and practiced by every practitioner. Obviously, the more years I practice, the more hands-on experience I have, the more client feedback I have, Mm -hmm. and the more that I iterate or build upon the feedback that I receive. Mm -hmm. So much of what I'm doing today 
deviates from what is often seen as the usual practice of hypnosis because of the ongoing client feedback that I've gotten over the years. Right. And there very much is sort of a market pressure for a practitioner to show the client immediate results after the first session. There are some market pressures mm-hmm. that, um, that I've tried to address, that I tried to practice within, such as the client's um, expectation of relatively quick results right. compared to psychotherapy, compared to psychology, compared to counseling or other practices. Mm-hmm. People choose hypnotherapy because of its reputation for being so solution focused Mm -hmm. that they can expect results after the first session. So that's something that I have sort of adapted to Mm -hmm. over the years. Um, I look for ways to minimize the number of sessions. Mm -hmm. I look for ways to be more efficient with time. One policy I've had since I started in 2006 Mm -hmm. is we'll refund everyone who is dissatisfied Mm. with the work that I've done. Now, that's not to say that I can guarantee that my words entering someone's mind would actually be acted upon or Mm -hmm. listened to or believed in, but there is a guarantee that I do high quality work Mm -hmm. and I'm proud enough of what I do that if anyone asks for a refund, we just refund them, wipe my hands clean and that's it. Yeah, and I think that's a great guarantee to have. And I don't think any practitioner really can guarantee any results for their clients. No, no. <laughs> but what is in my control mm-hmm. is the way we handle billing and so on. So we will yes. refund everyone who's dissatisfied. Okay. And it's given me feedback that a lot of practitioners just don't get. Mm-hmm. So over the years, as I adapt to sort of market expectations and so on, I kind of had to separate the nonsense mm-hmm. that sometimes theorists uh, or people who teach more than they practice will believe in and then teach Mm -hmm. from what is practically applicable. And that's what you learn when you see clients in a real clinical setting. Right. So um, over the years, I've discarded much um, much of what I've learned. I've also drawn from other disciplines. one word that you might hear me use over and over again is epistemology, mm-hmm. where it's the study of um, knowledge. It's the theory of, um, or the philosophy of how do we know what we know? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we know that we know it? What confidence can we have in our beliefs? What are justified beliefs? Like Those are the questions answered by epistemology. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of practitioners see hypnosis as putting people into fantasy worlds. Fantasy worlds where, um, as a non-smoker, everything is perky and perfect and happy and Mm -hmm. colorful and bright, or that that they will always be able to resist the chocolate chip cookie. Yeah. So I am not about putting people into fantasy worlds. Mm -hmm. I am more about uh, pointing out truths that the client had overlooked. Um, I would characterize my practice as that every suggestion I make can be validated in the world out there, outside the session room, and not just in um, the near future, but most of my suggestions are the kinds of things that you want to believe in mm-hmm. for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. 
So I would say that um, my speaking to universal truths mm-hmm. um, that are still true in a decade, um, that are true for all human beings, that is where my practice seems to be going. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, it actually seems to arise from my desire to show clients quick results. Mm -hmm. Because um, if I'm going to help a client change in their first session, I can't spend that session doing an intake. The only way I can help someone get some kind of result or noticeable change in the world out there is if I communicated them a healthier mindset, mm-hmm. and if I spend their entire session time um, elaborating upon it, putting it in the context of their life and their problems. Mm-hmm. So there is a little bit of generalization okay. going on right. to be efficient with time. But one thing I've come to realize is that human beings are much, much more similar mm-hmm. than different. Mm-hmm. And many generalizations um, especially when the client's open-minded, but also when stated in the right way, um, are very meaningful and significant. Right. I'll give you one example. You deserve the same kindness that you give to everyone else. Mm-hmm. Now, that's something a lot of people don't actually believe. If you were to internalize that and believe it and live out that belief, it's fair to you. It's going to still be true in 10 years and 20 years. It's going to benefit you, and it's going to benefit you in many different ways. Mm -hmm. So just in that one sentence, you deserve the same kindness that you wish on others, that you give to others. Mm -hmm. Just in that one sentence, there's a lot that the client can unpack. So another question that I have is, uh, would the unconscious mind be relevant to the practice of hypnosis? Yes. Um, That's the short answer. Mm -hmm. I would rather say it's a dark room. I can see it's a dark room. I can definitely see that sometimes things come out of it. Sometimes things go into it. But I don't know much more than that it's a dark room. Interestingly enough, um, once you put aside the unconscious mind and still practice hypnosis anyway, um, your solutions end up being more practical. Mm -hmm. They end up being more um, noticeable by the client. Mm -hmm. The concept of the unconscious mind is actually not necessary for the practice of hypnosis. And I Mm -hmm. often find that um, practitioners who speak a lot about the unconscious mind Mm -hmm. are um, just not as practical. And that doesn't, I don't intend for that to sound as damning as it might have sounded right (laughs) um i I just prefer to say it's a dark room we can all see it's a dark room Mm -hmm. but i prefer not to opine Mm -hmm. about what i can't see right and it's not necessarily you don't have to explore it right because it doesn't really affect the treatment in and of itself it can it actually can so i definitely acknowledge that the unconscious mind exists that there, there is part of me that is out of conscious awareness. For mm-hmm. example, um, the feeling of my feet in my boots before I bring my attention there was unconscious. Yes. Yet, the, um, all the nerve endings were still giving signals to my brain. It mm-hmm. just was at the very back of my mind right. as opposed to at the front of my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, all of my memories going back to high school, elementary school, mm-hmm. They're somewhere far away back there. They are unconscious or they're out of conscious awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I guess what I'm saying is none of this is a big deal. Okay. And th- that's, that's out of everything. <laughs> I think maybe that's the point I want to make, that we shouldn't get caught up on the idea that the unconscious, mm-hmm. that the unconscious mind is um, a solution or that holds the solution to all your problems. Of course, right. Um, I do believe that solutions are better found in the thinking of people who don't have mm-hmm. the problem that a client has mm-hmm. than by doing um, a dive into or a search into the client's unconscious mind. Mm-hmm. Um this is where um, this is where different schools of thought come in. Um, in psychology, there's sort of a split between adherence of Freud mm-hmm. uh, and psychoanalysis versus the more behavioral or cognitive behavioral school of thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think the cognitive behavioral school of thinking is just going to completely take over psychology mm-hmm. and that more and more as we get farther, uh, further in time away from Freud, mm-hmm. that fewer people will be doing psychoanalysis. Fewer people will be doing explorations of their dreams and their unconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to denigrate the practice of psychoanalysis or the work of Sigmund Freud. Mm-hmm. Um, I just look at every great speaker um, or communicator who was able to persuade people to new points of view before Freud as showing us that we do not need the concept of the unconscious mind to effectively practice verbal suggestion. Well. Hypnosis is um, a subjective experience. What can clients expect to feel when they're in a state of hypnosis? So different people have different experiences, similar to how three people all taking the same mushroom will have three different (laughs) subjective experiences of the same compound inside their brain. Um, So I would say that what every experience has in common is an inward focus, a distortion of the feeling of time passing. Mm -hmm. Usually time feels like it's flying by, Mm -hmm. and then 50 minutes might feel like 15 minutes, or 40 minutes might feel like 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Almost universally, people will feel very heavy or very light. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a relaxation that is often deeper, especially for people who are normally very uh, wound up tight. Mm-hmm. There's a deep relaxation involved. Um, I also want to create a feeling where the client feels supported, which means they don't have to think, they don't have to plan, they don't have to look ahead, and instead they can let my words guide their thoughts and their feelings. Now that's more what I have to create for the client. Um, But I would say that if all those check boxes are checked, then somebody was effectively hypnotized. Right. Now, what is your approach to remove the mysticism out of uh, hypnosis in general? Well, that's a great question Mm -hmm. again. And um, you might know that the uh, motto for this business is we make hypnosis make sense. Mm Because I, I do believe that if people understood hypnosis better, more people would be doing it. Fewer mm-hmm. people would be scared of it. Yeah. Fewer people would believe that it's hokey or that it's, um, well, whatever 
derogatory term you might put on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm doing to take the mysticism out of hypnosis is to explain it like the way I am on this episode mm-hmm. in ways that don't require you to buy into any new beliefs. You don't have to believe anything new to believe that words can affect how you feel. You don't have to believe anything new to believe that you have the capacity to open your mind to well-spoken words in the right context. Because I don't talk a lot about the unconscious mind, Mm -hmm. I'm avoiding the whole topic of how the heck do you know what is in the unconscious mind when by definition it is unconscious. Of course. So um, I'm a rather humanistic, empirically minded person. And um, the more I stick with that, universal human thoughts and values and belief systems, Mm -hmm. um, as well as rational inquiry, um, empirical observation, and good epistemology, Mm -hmm. the more I stick to these things, the um, more hypnosis feels like a normal thing that people can do. Mm -hmm. Our clients here, as you know, tend toward the more affluent end of uh, society. Yes. So we get professionals, managers, engineers, professors. These people don't have the luxury of being in a fantasy headspace. Mm-hmm. We get doctors in here. We get scientists in here. Mm-hmm. They, their entire jobs are to take a close, unflinching look at reality. So um, to answer the question again, it, it's, it's to stay true to the same kinds of values um, and belief systems held by most people in this world. How can you determine a client's hypnotic depth? It's a great question. Mm-hmm. So um, hypnotic depth, again, mm-hmm. is a concept that not every uh, mm-hmm. practitioner or theorist will agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, people who believe that we're always in hypnosis and that every hypnotic phenomenon can be exhibited mm-hmm. um, at any depth um, I mean, that's a school of thought. Um, So I I do somewhat believe in the concept of depth. Now, depth is just a metaphor. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't refer to deeply relaxed. Mm -hmm. It refers to the ability to accept um, increasingly unusual, even bizarre suggestions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a hypnotic depth scale... For example, there's an Aaron scale, there's also a Stanford scale, um, but a depth scale will have a list of hypnotic phenomena, things mm-hmm. that happen during hypnosis, um, ideas people can accept during hypnosis, that normally when their critical faculties are all online, they, they wouldn't accept. Mm-hmm. So um, on lighter levels, the suggestions are fairly easy. It's like, your eyelids are so relaxed that they don't work. Test them, show yourself they don't work. Mm-hmm. And then that's fairly easy for most people to accept. Yep. Later on, um, to test for a deeper level, I might make suggestions like um, you'll try to raise your arm, but you'll find that you can't. Mm-hmm. Your arm is just like a block of wood. And even when you try to lift your arm, it just stays exactly where it is perfectly still. Mm-hmm. Now, that's harder to accept. Yes. So if the client accepts that suggestion and finds that they can't lift an arm, mm-hmm. it is indicative of a deeper depth. Okay. 
in deeper levels still, people can hallucinate. Mm -hmm. People can have almost like an eyes open dream mm -hmm. in that they might imagine a cat that isn't there. Mm. So that is, like I said, a, a deeper level. But to, to answer the question, mm. it's to give suggestions that normally people wouldn't accept right. and see if they accept them. Okay. Um, have you ever had a client um, react a certain way when you told them or asked them to either lift an arm or move a certain part of their body and they were unable to? Have they responded a certain way to that? Well, usually um, in sessions, mm -hmm. the test that I use um, is the eye lock test or eyelid catalepsy. Mm. Um, so the suggestion is your eyelids are so relaxed that they don't work. Mm. Give them a good test, show yourself they don't work. Mm -hmm. And for some people, especially if I find out they're claustrophobic, it is scary, mm. even terrifying, <laughs> to find that they no longer control their eyelids. Mm -hmm. And in that situation, um, sometimes I have to reassure the client mm -hmm. that th there's no power coming from me, mm -hmm. that it is not just my suggesting that mm -hmm. that's causing their eyes to have locked shut. It is their acceptance of, of what I've said mm -hmm. um, and that that is just a test to for them and for me to know mm -hmm. that they're able to accept my suggestions mm -hmm. to that degree. Okay. Because before I get to the reasons why they're actually in my office, so to quit smoking mm -hmm. or to lose weight or to overcome an anxiety or a fear, mm -hmm which are often more deeply rooted. By the time I'm working on the issue or the issues that they're actually in my office for, mm -hmm. so to quit smoking or to lose weight, um, I want to make sure they are accepting relatively easy suggestions to accept, mm -hmm. like that they have forgotten the next number in a sequence. If they're not accepting something simple that they can do in the moment there, mm -hmm. then I don't expect them to be accepting suggestions that they're done with cigarettes, okay. they love their body more than cigarettes, mm -hmm. or any of the other positive suggestions that I do want to get to, but um, only after they've demonstrated that they are able to accept my suggestions above their own thinking or knowledge. Now, do you have to be weak-willed or gullible to actually become hypnotized? <laughs> I think the idea that one has to be gullible or weak-willed to be hypnotized comes from the idea that someone who's hypnotized has been tricked or deceived into hypnosis mm -hmm. as opposed to um, a willing participant in a process facilitated by the practitioner. Um, if you see the client and the practitioner cooperating together, then there's literally no um, conflict between a strong-willed person and a hypnotist mm -hmm. or a, um, a very good critical thinker and a hypnotist mm -hmm. because the hypnotist is sort of uh, sort of a mercenary <laughs> they're hired by the client mm -hmm. to solve a problem for the client right so in that context the, the question mm -hmm. of gullibility or weak-willedness if that's a word mm -hmm. doesn't mm -hmm. even come up because I'm not tricking my clients into the idea that life as a non-smoker is better. Yeah. That's just a matter of fact that 85% yes. of us live. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not tricking the clients into believing that flying is safe enough to be boring. Mm -hmm. That is just a reality that most of us already live in. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that, um, that that myth comes from the idea that someone 
who's in hypnosis is being coerced or deceived into being hypnotized, mm-hmm. and that is not at all the case. Okay. And for, for me as well, um, I'm not putting people into fantasy worlds. Mm-hmm. If a practitioner is essentially getting the client to buy into a fantasy world where, for example, um, they'll never be tempted by their friend smoking, Mm-hmm. then the whole fantasy falls apart once they stop believing in it. In contrast, if they always believe that they are the only person who can decide their consumption choices, mm-hmm. and they stick with that, that'll be true for the rest of their lives. That's not a fantasy. Right. It's a, you know, each person is the only person who can decide what they're going to consume. Okay. For smoking, I'll just use smoking as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, when the client smoked their first cigarette, it was a decision. Yes. The cigarette doesn't magically jump <laughs> into their hand. Right. They decided to break their 14 or 18 or 20 years of non-smoking mm-hmm. and have a first cigarette. Probably the first few cigarettes, they had to actually decide. Mm. I want them to bring that back. Mm-hmm. If the client believes that cigarettes have power over them, they are ascribing to dead, dried up plant material, Mm. consciousness that does not exist in the cigarette while they deny their own conscious decision-making ability, Mm -hmm. which for me is so backwards (laughs) that whichever words I find to communicate that Mm -hmm. they are the conscious one, they have decision-making power. They are in control. They are in charge. And cigarettes are just dead, desiccated plant material. That's true. The more I can, it's like I said, everything I say is true and comforting, true and inspiring, true and motivating, true and something else. Mm -hmm. And I endeavor to speak these kinds of truths in ways that stick with people. Right, right. Why do you believe that hypnosis is more of an art than a science? It's a great question. Mm-hmm. I guess you've read my booklet, The Skeptic's Guide, <laughs> yes. where I, I do put forth the idea that hypnosis is more of an art than a science. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking specifically about hypnosis in practice mm-hmm. in a place like this. One of the reasons is that I work with individuals. Earlier I said I do have to generalize, mm-hmm. but I only do it reluctantly, right. um, only to meet the expectation that the client sees quick change. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am not doing science on my clients. Mm-hmm. I'm not controlling what I do to be the same for everybody. Mm-hmm. I um, Well, clients have not volunteered for a study. Um, uh, our follow-up is by phone a couple of weeks later. Um, so everyone who doesn't answer, we literally don't hear back from, mm-hmm. and we don't push it because our clients have not signed up to be scientifically studied. That's right. Mm-hmm. So that's <clears throat> why the work I do here is, is not science. Um, what makes it an art, though, is, like I said, um, I do see myself as being sort of like a modern-day orator mm-hmm. or a modern-day rhetorician, mm-hmm. um, which means that... Every discipline that uses words is one I can draw from. So I draw from, um, well, I mean, the most popular author in the field of the psychology of influence is Cialdini. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I draw from books written by uh, publicists and people who work in PR. I draw from, of course, all the um, persuasion techniques that go way back to the Greeks. Um, I draw from poetry and uh, drama and fiction, narrative fiction. Mm -hmm. um, I was an English major, mm -hmm. so I read lots of that. Um, and there is a very rich history of how stories have inspired people mm -hmm. um, or motivated people since the dawn of, of, of human history. So I see what I do as more of an art than a science mm -hmm. because I, I don't see this practice of using words to affect people for the better as having started around the time of Freud um, or the first part of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. I see it going back to even before that, where before the concept of the unconscious mind, before modern psychology, there have been bards, storytellers, playwrights, actors, who have used words to affect people for the better. So I'll draw from all these mm -hmm. sources, and I am drawing from the arts. I'm not drawing mm -hmm. from sciences. Okay. Yep. Interesting. Although I, I, I do want to add, I do want to add that even though I said I'm not doing science, yep. I do very much value empiricism yes. and good epistemology. I do want to make sure that is communicated mm -hmm. because I'm not creating fantasy worlds. Right. I am, mm -hmm. we're coming back to it again, pointing out truths <laughs> yes. that clients had neglected or overlooked. Right, of course. Now, how does hypnotherapy differ from psychotherapy? It's a great question. I actually have a separate video on this topic, but I'll summarize it as quickly as I can. Great. Um, the main difference, at least the way that I see it, so if there are any psychotherapists out there who disagree with me, feel free to leave a response or make a response video. But the main difference, the way that I see it, is that the model for change is different. If you ask me, how does hypnosis change people? Mm -hmm. I'll tell you. It is verbal suggestion. Mm -hmm. Hypnosis allows people to open their minds and receive the words I'm speaking, to feel the words I'm speaking, to accept the words I'm speaking more deeply, but it is my words affecting their open minds that causes the change. Mm -hmm. Few psychotherapists practice under the model that they are the cause of the client's change. Mm -hmm. Most psychotherapists, at least the ones I've talked to, will always credit the client. I mean, I also credit the client more than myself because mm -hmm. the client's the player on the field, I'm the coach on the sidelines just calling things out. Right. So I do credit the client for change, but um, a, a psychotherapist will tend to believe that the client gaining their own insights, the client, um, being able to look inward and figure things out with the therapist's help is what causes the change. Mm. So in cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, the client is taught what cognitive distortions are, and they'll be given a list, and then they'll be asked to rewrite their thoughts so that the, a similar cognition um, is going to be more comforting or more truthful. Mm -hmm. I guess I'll summarize it as that in psychotherapy, clients are expected to come up with their own answers, okay. which is a very valid way of doing things. Mm -hmm. In hypnotherapy, again, 
largely because of expectations of clients. Um, we're kind of giving people the answers. Mm-hmm. I'm showing our smoker clients mm-hmm. what life as a non-smoker is like mm-hmm. and sharing that perspective. I'm showing people what life is like for a fearless flyer, which is not that they're confident and beaming mm-hmm. walking into an airplane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's that flying is so routine yes. and predictable, it's boring. Right. So um, I would say that I, I borrow quite a bit from um, a discipline called NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, mm-hmm. not Natural Language Processing, mm-hmm. um, in that I believe in looking at models of healthy thinking mm-hmm. and communicating that model of healthy thinking to the clients who come here. It's very solution-focused. Mm-hmm. Um, that is one other big difference. In psychotherapy, you tend to look at the problem. Whether or not there's a diagnosis, you tend to look at the problematic thinking mm-hmm. or reactions or memories. Right. Um, whereas in hypnotherapy, um, we tend to put that aside and ask the client to accept completely new ways of thinking mm-hmm. or reacting or imagining. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know how many of our viewers are, are computer programmers, but one analogy that I'll use for computer programmers is that sometimes clients present with spaghetti code. So they're program is really messy, it's cobbled together, Mm. and it's very hard to debug, it's hard to figure out what the problems are, Mm -hmm. a psychotherapist would make the effort to unravel the spaghetti code Mm -hmm. and to make it more orderly. Right. Someone like me would rather just put the whole thing aside and give you a new script. Mm. The same kind of script that works for the next person or for the last 10 people who also wanted to become a non-smoker. Right. So um, those are a few differences. I have more in my psychotherapy versus hypnotherapy video, or I think I also have a video called I Am Not Your Therapist. Yes. Because (laughs) one day I just got frustrated by people treating me like Mm. a therapist and telling me all their problems. Right when I'd rather just know only enough to find solutions okay. and then go right into delivering solutions. Right, so solution-focused instead of digging up it's, into somebody's past. It's very solution-focused. Yeah. There are other differences, mm-hmm. but those are some of the major ones. Okay, very interesting. Okay, do, do you have any other questions for me? or That's all I have for you, Luke. Well, fantastic. <laughs> um, I uh, want to wrap up this first episode mm-hmm. by having you share your thoughts on the session that I did with you earlier today. Right. Now, you have been working here for a few weeks, so you facilitated a few people coming in here, and um, you kind of knew what to expect going in. Right. You had also seen consistently people walk in, and they're much more stressed than when they walk out of the session room. So you got to have that experience firsthand earlier today. That's right, yeah. So my first question is, was it what you expected? It was very different than anything I've ever experienced before. I didn't know exactly what to expect or what to feel. Uh, Of course, I spoke with other clients and uh, discussed their experiences and uh, how they felt before entering a session with you and their 
common concerns and whatnot. But um, for me, I, I believe I'm pretty suggestible. I did do the suggestibility tests and um, my score was quite high. So uh, I, I feel like I definitely did enter a state of hypnosis. It almost felt like an outer body experience. Mm. Um, and I believe the way you describe it as an, a state of being half awake and half asleep, mm -hmm. it was very, I believe that's very accurate. Um, and it was very relaxing and my body almost, I would say maybe a minute or two into the actual session felt very heavy. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I really felt like I couldn't move my muscles, they almost felt like they were jelly. <laughs> um, but it was a very interesting experience and it was definitely something I would love to try again. So, so I'm curious because I have been hypnotized before, but I've never yep. been hypnotized by me. Yeah, I wanted to ask you actually if you have been hypnotized before. Well, of course. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> when you go through training yes. and also just to understand the skill and the practice and the craft better. Of course. Of course, I'm not just on the speaking side. I sometimes will participate in sessions performed by someone else. Right. Um, so my, my question for you is, um, have you ever done, uh, sometimes in yoga, they'll mm -hmm. have a meditation at the end, they'll have a yes. guided meditation. Right. Have you ever done any guided meditations before? Because that's usually the closest analogy mm -hmm. that, um, that, that, that people can relate to right. when they think about what hypnosis might feel like. And if you have, then can you speak as to how hypnosis might be different from this very similar related practice. Right. So I've definitely done quite a few yoga classes in the past. And generally, they do end yoga sessions mm -hmm. uh, by going into a pose called Shavasana, where you lay down and you relax. It's my favorite pose. It's a great pose. <laughs> it's very soothing and comforting. Um, and generally, you're laying down, uh, your palms are open, you're taking deep breaths. Um, and you allow the instructor's voice to affect you to the best of your ability, which is very similar to what Luke does with his clients in a hypnosis session. Um, so in that sense, it's almost similar um, in, in a yoga pose, a relaxing yoga pose, uh, to an actual hypnotherapy session. Um, so in that respect, they are pretty mm -hmm. similar. It's just, I would say, shorter when you're in Shavasana. It's a shorter length yes. of time. Yep. <laughs> um, but otherwise, when I've tried to do meditation on my own, mm -hmm. uh, sitting comfortably by myself, it's a little bit harder. It's it's nicer to have somebody guide you with their mm -hmm. own voice, especially if they have a soothing voice like Luke does. It definitely helps you enter a more, um, just a, a different world almost, it feels like, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you, you don't have to tell our viewers what the content of the session was about, right. but it wasn't just a relaxation session. It wasn't just going into hypnosis and coming back out again. Right. I did want to make an impact on the way that you feel. Yes. Um, it's been a few hours since your session now. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a bit about how anything, if anything, shifted or changed yeah, um, since the session? For sure. So um, I am someone who has... I would say generalized anxiety for for the most part. Um, so I noticed after the session, uh, physically, like a physical difference. Um, usually, sometimes I have a tendency to sort of like scrunch up my shoulders. Um, I noticed that my muscles felt much looser, mm -hmm. um, a lot lighter. 
Um, even though it's interesting because in the actual session, I did feel heavier, but coming out of it and actually walking out of the room, I felt much lighter. So I felt, you know, that was an interesting feeling for sure. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. You've described hypnosis, um, at least observing clients walking out of my office, yes. as being like a massage for the brain. Yes, I love that analogy. Because <laughs> th there's no actual physical touch involved. There's no right. energy healing involved. Mm -hmm. It's purely through verbal suggestion That's right. that I cause all the effects that I do. Mm -hmm. um, after having experienced it, I guess you still see it as kind of like a massage for the brain. Definitely, almost even like a massage for the body, just because okay. of experiencing the heaviness and then mm -hmm. getting up out of the chair and yep. from feeling so heavy and almost mm -hmm. like you can't lift certain parts of your body to just slowly getting up and being able to walk out of the office and just feeling looser and lighter. It's, it's just, it's something that's hard to understand unless you physically experience it yourself, I find. Well, here's one way that I might sort of explain what the experience from the client side might be like. Sure. When you meditate by yourself, <clears throat> mm -hmm. you're sort of having to be, um, you have to go into, into your own psyche, mm -hmm. but you're unguided, you're going alone. That's right. During hypnosis, you're going into your psyche but with an experienced guide. Mm -hmm. So I kind of know what pitfalls to avoid, what things to point out. Mm -hmm. um, I sort of know how to anticipate and prevent problems or to handle issues as they arise. Mm -hmm. So it means you don't have to think yes. about what you're supposed to be thinking mm -hmm. or doing. You don't have to keep an eye on the time. You don't have mm -hmm. to worry about all of that. Um, and you get to focus more on your own experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Once again, thank you for joining our first episode of The Hypnosis Nerd. I'm Luke Chow. And I'm Kim Gray. From the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis in Toronto, Canada, where we make hypnosis make sense. Mm -hmm.